So clearly there are many factors that exert an influence here. Are they biological? What are some of the biggest drivers or contributors that we know about? What accounts for that huge difference and risk in these women? So as you know, Dr. Deb, that is one of my favorite and least favorite questions. It is one of my favorite questions in that we need to pay attention. This is not a coincidence. It is my least favorite question because people constantly think of, is there a biological difference? And the answer is decidedly no. Hello, and welcome to Health Views. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Now let's check out today's view. So we're going to be talking about Black maternal health and really your role as a OBGYN leader in that space. But I'd first like to start with a little about you, if you don't mind. I think that you have a fascinating personal history. And if you wouldn't mind telling us how, how did you end up, this girl from D.C. on the West Coast, doing what you're doing? Sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. with two professional parents who were African-American first, African-American trailblazers, particularly my mother, who mentored young lawyers from all over the country. She was the first black clerk on the Supreme Court. Wow. And so I knew that there was a context to everything. So while I was interested in science and had a do-gooder heart and wanted to be a physician, I knew that there was a political, social, historical context to whatever we did. So that as an undergraduate at Harvard, instead of just doing a straight pre-med major, I studied American medical history, took classes in sociology, anthropology to better understand how medicine happened. Then when I was applying to med school, I exclusively looked at places where I could do an MD and an MPH at the same time. Why was that important to you? So MPH, Masters of Public Health, why was it important to do the MPH-MD combination? Um, For exactly that reason, that I wanted to look more at populations. I wanted to look at societies. I wanted to look not just at the health of the individual, not that that isn't incredibly important, but at the health of the public, the health of the community. So you're you're going through your undergrad, you're applying to med school, MD, MPH. Where did you end up going? My undergraduate was at Harvard, and then I had a full ride to Emory and did the combined Emory Centers for Disease Control program and did five years, did my MD, MPH, and then came out to California for my OBGYN training. At that point, I knew I had to be exclusively focused on medicine. I wanted to be an excellent clinician. So when I hear that history, I'm thinking, you're going to go to the CDC. You're going to be an epidemiologist, for goodness sake, right? You chose a different path in OBGYN. I did. And my master's in public health was not epi, as most people's are. My master's in public health was health policy and management. And so, in fact, I took a class in comparative healthcare systems, and we're looking at different programs from around the world. And my final project, I did a composite of different countries 
and what their healthcare systems look like. And I got a bad grade. And I was horrified. And I said to my professor, what's going on? You know, I thought this was well-researched. I used four different systems. And he said, but this is just Kaiser Permanente. And I had no idea what Kaiser Permanente was at the time. I'd spent my whole life on the East Coast. So it was my first clue that there was something about the Kaiser Permanente model that was attractive to me and aligned with my values around community and population health. That's awesome. So you've been with KPE for a lot of years. And I know there's so much work that we're going to be talking about. But even before we get there, back to you as a mother, a Black woman, an OBGYN, you really have a very unique perspective on the maternity experience for Black women. So what do you think that people really need to understand about that maternal experience that is different? And just give us some insights from Amanda's perspective. It is different. And it's different now, in particular, because people know what the statistics are. I do consults now that are aimed at how can I not die. I know what the statistics are. I know that Beyonce, Serena Williams, really wealthy women with great access can have horrible outcomes. So what can I do? And I, as a young mother, when I was chief resident in OBGYN at UCSF, had severe preeclampsia, and I didn't even recognize it. How is that possible? (laughs) Correct. (laughs) I could recognize it in everyone else, but not myself. I knew my blood pressure was going up. I knew that my own grandmother had had such bad preeclampsia that she almost died. She lost the baby, so that's a very important part of sort of our family lore. But I felt that the headaches I was getting was because I needed new glasses and that because I was on leave, I was watching TV for the first time in a long time. And so it dawned on me that if I, at UCSF, the chief resident, could not see my own preeclampsia, there's a systemic problem here about listening to ourselves, listening to our bodies, in addition to living inside of the context of the systemic racism that abuse medicine and the entirety of our society. And I think in addition to not recognizing, there's also this mantra or persona of being a strong Black woman, right? And and the ability to ask for help in the middle of all this as well, I think, can be one of those barriers. Do do you agree? I I absolutely agree. Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite authors in Their Eyes Were Watching God, described Black women as the mules of the world. We take on everyone else's burden. We take on our family, our community, our partners. We take on the work of white men and women and take care of them. And so this idea that you have a mule's back, that you have to be strong in all situations, actually is a detriment to us. Yeah. And when it comes to your health and recognizing that there's something going on that needs something more than just stoicism. Absolutely. And so going into the pregnancy experience like that, and as a resident, I thought, you know, you just muscle through it. Like you don't complain, 
you do what you have to do. You're going to be strong, just like your mother, your grandmother. This is just what we do. I have to say, when you quoted Zora, that I, I had goosebumps. It was like, oh my God, that was amazing. So thank you for sharing that. The maternity experience, you know, we think about giving birth, but of course, it's so much more than that. There's prenatal care, the birthing experience itself. There's the postnatal experience, all of that going on. What happens when we look beyond the exam room to really understand the context within which Black women are experiencing pregnancy and childbirth? There's so much more to it. And I try when I'm training residents and honestly, my colleagues also, that we have to try our best to see full people, that there is their work environment. There are all these different social determinants of health. There is the community racism that they live inside of. And we're just getting a tiny moment, a tiny slice of this person's life. And we're starting, and I'm proud to be leading some of this work, in integrating more of the thinking about adverse childhood experiences into our prenatal care. Because it's a time of self-evaluation. It's a time of looking and saying, how do I want my life to maybe be different? But you can't move forward without moving back and looking at your past, looking at the context. So helping my colleagues, my residents figure out how to navigate that is a body of work. And it's time-consuming, intense work. It's more than just checking the box on blood pressure and weight. And are you taking your prenatals? And do you have a birthing plan? So how do you incorporate that into a busy practice? It is definitely a huge body of work. And my kids play baseball, so forgive the baseball analogy. But I tell colleagues, my goal is to underhand pitch you as much as possible so you could not get out of the park. So to create structures, to create tools, to create checklists that get automatically uploaded into our electronic medical records, to have handouts, to have resources, to have telephone numbers that we now put in QR codes that people can scan and figure out where to get social work assistance. We have to build structure around it. And that is actually something that's wonderful about Kaiser Permanente is that it's all inside of one system for the most part. And in the greater community, that's not the case. It's much more fragmented in terms of getting people connected to the resources outside of direct medical care, but that are just as influential in creating sort of one-stop shop concept for birthing people is a huge opportunity outside of this organization. Absolutely. You know, you were mentioning some statistics earlier. The CDC shows that about 700 women die each year in the U.S. as a result of pregnancy or its complications. And Black and Native American women are two to three times as likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than women from white, Hispanic, or Asian Pacific Islander origin. So clearly there are many factors that exert an influence here. Are they biological? What are some of the biggest drivers or contributors that we know about? What accounts for that huge difference and risk in these women? So as you know, Dr. Deb, 
That is one of my favorite and least favorite questions. It is one of my favorite questions in that we need to pay attention. This is not a coincidence. It is my least favorite question because people constantly think of, is there a biological difference? And the answer is decidedly no. Can you say that again? <laughs> say it for the, for the people in the back, Amanda. Say, say it again. Decidedly no, right? I, let's, let's just be so clear about this. This disparity in maternal death around the time of childbirth is not related to biology. The answer is decidedly no. This is the impact of systemic racism and its downstream consequences that are enmeshed in our society and culture. So tell us a story that illustrates that. What does that mean that you have worse outcomes for women because of systemic racism? How is this affecting women's health and their risk for delivery? So I love the example of Serena Williams because she's a well-known celebrity and someone who has used her notoriety to be a platform for promoting maternal health services and knowledge of these disparities that are so powerful that even the rich and famous are subject to the same. So for example, Serena Williams had had blood clots before. And so she knew what it was like to have a blood clot in her leg. And she had just had her baby, and she started having the same feeling as when she had had a blood clot before. And she knew that with pregnancy, you're at even more risk of having blood clots. She had just had a C-section. and Another risk factor, right? A surgical procedure. Another risk factor for having blood clots. So she has a history. She has multiple risk factors, and she knew it herself. And yet the nurse who was taking care of her, a white woman, when she said, I think I'm having a clot, said, no, don't worry, honey. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And she tried to advocate for herself and said, no, I really, I need you to call the doctor. I really think I need to be assessed for a blood clot. And so then she had to ask multiple times. And by the time she was finally treated, she was actually over-treated and ended up then having internal bleeding from the blood thinners being given. So they sort of overdosed it to make up for having not recognized it before. And so if the greatest of all time has to fight to get medical care, what does this mean for women who come in? And they're delivering their babies and they're covered through Medicaid or Medi-Cal. What does it mean for women who just have regular insurance or have regular influence? How does that translate for all of them in this system that doesn't necessarily hear these women? Right. And that's the story that I see as a thread throughout. It is the listening. It is really hearing patients. And I'm not saying that Serena Williams' nurse was a bad nurse. There are tons of amazing doctors, nurses, midwives, doulas who are well-intended. Yet our society has trained us to value some voices more than others. That then gets doubled down by us 
by Black women, even someone, as I said in my story earlier, not trusting our own bodies because we're not used to being acknowledged. Now, I could not be in a more privileged position. I could not have more education in obstetrics. And yet I wasn't listening to my own body. 17 years ago, and still I get a little beclumped thinking about it. And I have some shame around it. But I know that if this can happen to me, oh my God, how is this not happening all the time to people who aren't as fortunate to have the education, the privilege, the support? And so this is not just my work. This is my passion. This is my mission. And this is what I'm here to do. Yeah, obviously. This is, it comes through so much. So you mentioned that that nurse is probably a, a good nurse, maybe even a great nurse. And yet there was something there, right? Or maybe she just had a bad day. So I know that you're involved in work in helping people recognize and kind of push through or overcome their own unconscious bias when it comes to treating people, working together in medical care. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So implicit bias, unconscious bias, these concepts are new to a lot of people in healthcare. And so all of the regions across the Kaiser Permanent Enterprise are looking at how can we educate our teams about bias. And this is not bias because people are bigot or that they are malintended, but it's because we live in a society that has it embedded. The part of making that happen is getting away from shame and blame or thinking about people as having, you know, being nasty racist, because that's, you know, often what you hear. Right. Start coming forward with a training and you're like, oh, but I'm not a racist. I'm not calling you a racist. <laughs> but I'm saying that we all have biases. And so in California, there's actually a law passed that everyone who takes care of patients in the maternal health space, including doctors, nurses, midwives, has to do training in implicit bias. We know that in California, maternal death rates have come down, yet the disparities have gotten worse. So we can't just say, oh, our programs in managing hemorrhage are going to take care of it. Our programs in managing hypertension are going to take care of it. We actually have to get closer to the roots of the problem. So being able to roll out these trainings, to be able to teach the resident, to put in programs around remote monitoring of patient conditions, it's been great to be a part of this work so that we can start nudging the needle forward. And, you know, speaking of uh, work being done, there was something that came out just this week, I believe, California, where Governor Newsom actually signed, I think they're calling it the Momnibus Bill. The Momnibus. We have one in California, but yes, the Momnibus just got signed. Why is that important? What's, what's it about? Well, there's a couple of things that are very important is the uh, extension of Medicaid, Medi-Cal to 12 months. 12 months after birth, right? Excuse me. Yes, until 12 months after birth. 
because the complications don't just happen at the very beginning. There are delayed complications, and the disparities continue through that time. So we want to make sure that gaps in insurance aren't a reason for someone to not get the care that they need. Furthermore, there is doula coverage. And so doulas are birth support people. They're lay people. They're not licensed professionals, but they can be so important to the birth process because they can be a voice. They can be emotional support for the patient, especially for patients who don't, aren't used to using their voice or are used to being deferential to people with lots of fancy degrees. So to have doulas, so this bill covers doula care for Medi-Cal patients, for Medicaid patients, so that they can have somebody to be with them, to help empower them in the birth process. And I just love that whole idea where they've been through many, many births. They work with doctors and midwives all the time themselves, so the intimidation factor is just removed. They themselves, as a doula, are not in that vulnerable position where, oh my gosh, what's happening? And they're just, they're there to be there for that delivering person, to be an advocate, to be watching. I don't, I don't have any sisters. My best friend came to my kids' deliveries, and I feel like she was my doula, right? She was the person that was watching out for all the other things, helping to take care of me. And to have that person has to make such a difference for these birthing people that I'm very excited about the doula aspect of it. I think it's just phenomenal. Yeah, me too. We have in uh, one of our nearby counties, they passed a county ordinance specifically for Black women to cover doulas as as part of an effort to help shrink disparities in their county. So I think that it's starting to get a little bit more energy behind it, and people are realizing that doula care really can be transformative for patients. The other thing about doulas is that they can do almost anything. Support can look like so many different things. With my second son, I had a doula because I was, after having a very medicalized first birth, I wanted to have an unmedicated, undisturbed second birth. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to sort of manage people. And I wanted to just think about me and this baby. And so she became, I call her my overqualified doula. <laughs> because she was actually a nurse and a friend and a clinical instructor with a PhD. But she played that role for me. Yep. And then she also coached my ex-husband. She told him, you know, push her feet in that spot. Put, you know, massage her low back. Be careful, dude. She's really getting into it and she might wrestle you to the ground, (laughs) which I did because I got that superhuman strength. But she was there to help me navigate. And again, it comes back to the point that this isn't about class or money or education. It's about us being able to show up more fully as ourselves and to have a voice for our, our bodies. But I I also think of single parents delivering. Mm -hmm. How important to have that advocate. I mean, the vulnerability is just different, you know, 10x different in that that case. So I think that that's another space where trying to meet those needs. And and again, it's not just the whole the birth process, but prenatal afterwards as well. And, And so then 
as we kind of expand from that patient, that delivering person, educating the medical community, there's a whole nother side or, or addition to this that's still so important, which is what you alluded to way in the beginning with your own training, which is the systemic issues. And what are those and how do those contribute to Black maternal health? And what do we need to do about them in order to level things so that everybody gets to have a healthy pregnancy delivery? I mean, the truth of the matter is that it took 400 years to get here. And it's going to take probably 400 years for us to get a level playing field. That makes me sad. It, it makes me sad and it makes me mad. It is just real. There's so many pieces to the puzzle. There are educational opportunities. I mean, for example, the way that kids of color have fallen behind with COVID and not being able to go to school for a year, the educational disparities that were already there are going to be magnified. And we've only been able to see the tip of the iceberg. We talked about chronic stressors and what that means in terms of health outcomes. People coming into pregnancy less healthy, more obese, more hypertension, more diabetes. We think about food. We think about food deserts that are disproportionately occupied by communities of color where you have less opportunity to have healthy choices that might help with those chronic conditions. There are job opportunities. You know, when people are just recruiting from the sources that they know and are not thinking about, do I need to expand? Do I need to figure out how to think differently? You know, there's just so, so much. And uh, my partner always tells me, Amanda, you cannot boil the ocean. And I have to try to stay in control of myself and not try to do everything. There's so many different pieces of this puzzle. And that's something when I'm talking about maternal disparities, I always try to impart, which is that we all can take a piece of this. We all can do something about health disparities. So first, it has to start at home. People have to do their own work. And then there is something in their professional life. There's something in their community life that can be done. I have a friend who's in finance. He's like a white guy in finance couldn't be further from Black maternal health. But something he did during COVID was to read books on Zoom to kids whose parents in communities of color to parents were working. I love it. And, you know, we can all do our little part to help make us a more equitable society. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about KP and, and different interventions, programs that are happening really with the goal of, again, improving that whole maternal experience for women of color, Black women in particular. Can, can you tell us what gives you optimism for how we're addressing this issue? I was actually just privileged to be recognized as the top teacher in graduate medical education in Northern California. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm pretty excited about it. And I was most excited about it because I'm not a traditional teacher. My knowledge of the literature is solid, but it's not the best. I'm a really good surgeon. Am I the best surgeon? No. But what I do is teach to the gray. And so... What does that mean? 
So what I say teach to the gray is I help create a supportive environment for our residents, help them with getting over imposter syndrome, help them have a place to manage microaggression. And then I try to teach them to see the whole patient, to bring race into the conversation. And then I tell them about how to listen better. We talk about listening better. And so that's what I mean when I say teach to the gray. But the fact that our organization is recognizing that that has value, I think is really important. We talked also about implicit bias training, and that gives me some hope. I've been privileged to lead the Health Equity for Women Advisory Group for Northern California. And so we've now gone out to every women's health department and every OBGYN subspecialty in Northern California to talk about disparities, to help give them some tools as a starting point. And then probably the thing I am the most proud of, the legacy that I think will outlast me, is that both in inpatient maternal child health and in outpatient women's health departments, all work plans, all new initiatives have to have a disparities filter. What does that mean? A disparities filter? So it means that any new quality data report has to be able to be broken out by race ethnicity if it is going to be actionable. Any new project, let's say we're doing peripartum depression screening at a new time in pregnancy. There has to, in your, in your work plan, in your project plan, has to be a piece on what is the impact of this work going to be on disparities. So building it structurally into the work we do means that it becomes bigger than myself. It's not Amanda or Dr. Carla Wick who lead the culturally concordant care for the region. It is going to be part of this organization going forward. Because if you don't build it in, then you don't have the insights. And if you don't have the insights, you can't figure out if there are differences. And if there aren't, if you don't know that, you can't work to change them. So yeah, building that in structurally is going to have, I think, profound effects going forward. Well done. Thank you for doing that. It seems like so much of the burden of championing change, of raising the issues, of doing education still falls to the people that are most affected by it. Okay, we've got to diversify our workforce. You know, only 2% of physicians in the United States are Black women. Two. 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 And it is 2021. So people are trying to recruit, but who do they want to have on the panel? Who do these new employees want to be their mentors? Who do the residents want to be their mentors? We've covered a lot of material, a lot of emotionally charged territory today. I want to just end by asking, how do you persevere? You've mentioned this extra work. How do you persevere with your work and recognizing that your work is not just being an OBGYN, but it's this work of your life, as you put it, with everything that we're going on? What is your philosophy, your mantra, your motto what sees you through these times? And the irony is that we haven't even talked about COVID. <laughs> you want to talk about right? COVID and I'll ask you this question no, later? I don't want to talk about COVID. I'm thinking of talking about COVID. <laughs> An entire another layer. Oh. Let's talk just for a minute, though, which is 
the, again, the disparate impact, right, on people of color through this whole thing. And in, even in terms of loss, I believe that the statistic that I recall re- regarding grief and loss is one in 10 white people know someone that has died as a result of COVID. And it's three or four people of color who know that. So even just carrying the burden of grief through COVID is very disparate. And it's just another, it's just another package. It's just another thing on the back of these mules. Yeah, it's, it is part of life. But the, I talked about how I exercise regularly, get outside, and then my mindfulness practice. So can you say more about mindfulness? Let's talk about that because it's been something we've talked about on other episodes a lot. You're coming in just reinforcing how important it is. How did you get started? This is going to be its own like little mini podcast. How did you get started in mindfulness and what is it that you do? For many years, I was a bit of a therapy junkie and I realized that after many years of one-on-one therapy that there are Once you understand the issues, once you understand where your challenges are, there's a degree of brain training that has to go on. And that this isn't something that I do with someone else. This is something that I do with myself. And not to overshare, but when I was going through my divorce, it was very stressful and having my two black boys that I'm trying to protect and my patients and still be a good clinician was an incredibly difficult time. And so that's where I found meditation and a way of training my brain to be as present as possible. So there's one piece of it, which is the daily meditation. And then the other piece is just to slow down my thinking and to stay as present as I can be in any encounter I'm in. So for example, in terms of making it more concrete, giving myself a signal for my brain to shift. So when I walk into any room, I have a specific knock, knock, knock that I do. And that knock, knock, knock tells me, be here now. And so then I can enter in that situation, try to address the biases I might have, and leave some of the rest of it behind. So that's sort of what the the practical part of mindfulness and then the meditation part. And in fact, in this implicit bias conversation, people, there has been some literature around education only taking you so far. You really have to figure out how to think differently. And then in terms of mantras, it's kind of (laughs) funny because it comes out of surgery. It comes out of laparoscopic surgery when I was a resident. I was learning how to operate and, you know, laparoscopy, you're looking at the screen, but you're moving instruments, kind of like video games. And I was really struggling. I could never be a dentist. I did not have the best sort of reverse 3D perception. But one of my attendings I was working with just came up behind me and shifted my shoulders and changed my orientation to the screen. And he said to me, don't struggle, adjust. And that has become really one of my sort of key phrases for figuring out how to navigate these challenges. Because if something is too hard, if you're finding yourself struggling, there must be another way to do it. So don't struggle, adjust. Keep your mind open to the possibilities that are out there. 
And I think that mantra combined with my mindfulness practice has been part of really what's kept me going. I love that. And it really even suggests when you're in that moment of struggle, it opens up that there must be another way of doing this if I'm struggling this much. And what can I do instead of just doing the same thing over and over? And then are there any questions that you wish I would have asked you that I didn't? Um, No, this has been a fantastic interview. I love being able to think outside of just what I'm doing on a daily basis. It is a tremendous privilege to take care of patients in the intimate phase of their pregnancy and their birth. But if we don't put it into the greater context, we can get lost in the exceptionalism of that individual and miss that there are systemic problems that need to be addressed. So I always invite people to do their work at home. Actually, this would be one question that I wish you would have asked. What advice would you give to the well-intended Oh, I love that. start making a difference in the maternal health space? So what advice would you give to the well-intended to start making a difference in the maternal health space? First, I would say start at home. What are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? Where are your kids going to school? Do you know what the demographics are there? Who are they having over? One of my favorite stories is about my son as a preschooler. He was organizing his stuffed animals into families, and he made the panda bears, the giraffes, the monkeys, and he made one mommy family, he made a two mommy family, he made a mommy daddy family, and that was just his world because we had intentionally chosen a preschool that had a lot of diversity, including diversity of types of families. And so starting early in addressing bias and bigotry makes a huge difference. So for those of us who are parents, I think working with our children so that it's not so difficult, so that we don't have to retrain our brains, so that we start early on. So I'd say think about at home what your kids are doing and what you're doing. And then in the workplace, Just think about who's at the table. What voices am I missing? Because if we keep doing things the same way we're already doing them, we will continue to have the same disparate outcome. So this idea of, oh, just treat everyone the same, that actually gives us the same bad outcomes we already have. So if any of you are in positions of power or hiring or authority to think about what voices are missing, because it not just helps that person, it not just helps community of color, there's plenty of research that shows us when you have more women, when you have more people of color on your board of directors, in your organization, you have better outcomes, either financial or with health, because you have different ways of thinking about things. When I hear you say that, Amanda, I'm thinking about how we need to put in our own checklist. You talked about going forward with all these projects in California with KP, that there's going to be this checklist that has to include, you know, what are the diversity outcomes that we're looking at for all of these things? And so even having that on our own checklist, when we're assembling a team, when we're having a meeting, you know, and again, not checking a box, but as a reminder to say, this is really important and benefits all of us. And what does my team look like? What does this planning team look like? What is the, what does the speaker liner look like, right? One of the things that I 
that always tickles me is there's a new word out called mannels. And it's, um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's when, it's when you're going to attend a medical session by all of these experts. And despite the fact that there's men, women, people of color, that it's populated by just men. So instead of it being a panel, <laughs> it's a mannel. Yeah, and so and so uh, women are like, I'm not attending. You know what? If you can't find some diversity on this mantle, then why should I attend? So it's just thinking very consciously about those decisions that you're making and how you're showing up literally on those panels, on those teams, on your leadership team in a very different way. I love it. I love it. And we all can make those choices. We don't just have to accept the status quo. Any other advice? Um... No, I think that's it. I just hope that we all stay inspired. I worry that the further we get from 2020, the more people will think, oh, it's not a problem anymore. Unfortunately, 2021 is showing us it is, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We did not, we have not solved disparities just because there are few people, fewer people marching in the streets. That's right. And I dropped my kids at the bus stop this morning, and I always say a little prayer that they will stay safe because they are Black teenagers in America who are seen as a threat, where I see them as these beautiful, brilliant boys who have such bright careers ahead of them, who are amazing students, but that's not how the world sees them. So... Until that changes, until my sisters having birth can do so safely, I know that we still have a lot of work ahead of us. Thank you so much for the work that you do, for the work you do with patients, the work you do with systems. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud that we're colleagues in this organization. And uh, it's, it's really been uh, such a pleasure to talk with you, truly. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, um, it's great to be able to do a piece like this so that I can give some context to the work and not just talk about the work being done, but the why behind it also. Absolutely. So thank you. Thanks for giving me that opportunity. You're welcome.